You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Byron, I think it was probably back, I don't know, was it July or so, August of last year? Might have even been a little bit prior to that, closer to May or something. My book had just come out. We were connected by a mutual friend. Uh, someone actually who followed you on your blogs and may have listened to your podcast. And it was around that time frame where I think we first met. I wrote a little piece for one of your blogs and everything. Glad to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, Rob. I'm really excited. You were in the Marine Corps and separated as of June 2013, right? Yep. During that time frame, you were at the Naval Academy? Right. I went to the, I graduated from the Naval Academy in 2007, and, and that's when I commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. So I spent six years active duty. Gotcha. You led a couple commands, though, while you were in as well. I did. It was one of the fortunate things about my career because uh, as an officer, you know, having command is amazing, awesome, inspiring, just too many things like I can't really describe. But uh, I got a chance to do that uh, after I came back from my first deployment and and had a command of a of a military police company. That was my uh, occupational specialty. Okay. And then, of course, you know, being in the military, you don't get to do the same job forever. Um, at my next duty station, I was a, a series commander and then a company commander at a recruit training depot. So that's the Marine Corps boot camps. So right. I had the honor and the pleasure of uh, leading drill instructors, which is ah. another crazy, crazy thing. Yeah, I could imagine because, you know, they're a little bit more seasoned military, but yet at the same token, you can have a whole nother dynamic of challenges. Right, right, right. Because all the all the movies show those guys training recruits, right? All the yelling right. and screaming and 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 the and the tough training, but they they never show you the administrative and leadership side on the on the back end, the kind of stuff, kind of the people like hiding the stairwells, just making sure nothing goes wrong. Right. <laughs> Nobody writes home to their senators, so. That, that was my uh, that was my daily job for a while. Oh, I bet. I, I just remember, you know, very vividly many years ago, someone in one of the barracks jumping out the window and taking off running during basic training and the drill sergeant just saying, you know, I hope he never comes back so I don't have to do the paperwork. <laughs> yeah, that's that's happened a few times. Uh, recruits uh, jumping over the gate and Camp Pendleton and running onto the highway and trying to uh, hitch a ride to get out of there. Uh, it's... <laughs> Those are some interesting reports to write up, let me tell you. I bet. Listen, it, is, don't they tell you, I remember when I went to basic, they always told you, like, the fastest route out of how to get home. And then they say, if you ever come back, then we're going to make your life a living hell. So oh, yeah. I don't know if yeah. the Marines did that, but for Army, they're like, you just jump out here, go that way, take a left, and you're on your way. It definitely is. And it, what's interesting, I think, on the officer's side, it's it's one of those things that we learned that it's also... Uh, it's also a cost management thing. Like all these recruits that we bring into training, if they don't make it through, we just lost a ton of money flying them out there, recruiting them, training them. Sure. And it's not that they can't get through, right? Like it, at the end of the day, it's a leadership problem. So oftentimes, yes, we, we have to walk the fine line of providing really tough training to the point where people uh, want to give up, but then also providing them the leadership and the counseling to be able to to make it through. Because I mean, these are just... For the most part, these are just kids, and a lot of them think that they can't make it through, but <laughs> with some leadership and guidance from the drill instructors, they, they can make it. Now, the, the, guy, the drill instructors would never say, oh, we're, we're helping them get through, but uh, I, that's what I thought was fascinating because they, they, had that, they drew that fine line between really tough love 
but really also you know meeting the mission of the Marine Corps, which is training uh, these recruits to become Marines. When I was in the Guard, we I worked with the group recruiting command too, and we had that program where we would train them before they went to basic training. You know, there's that gap. Now, did the Marines have that also? They do. Uh, the uh, for us it was called the delayed entry program. Yeah, and. I think the recruiters did an amazing job with a lot of recruits trying to make sure they were prepared before boot camp because that reflected on them how many of their recruits went through. With the Marine Corps, if I'm not mistaken, the delayed entry program, the the recruiters are able to actually work them out physically, whereas the Army, we weren't able to do that. So we weren't able oh, really? to take our deppers and, you know, go out there and do any type of push-ups, set-ups, runs, get them prepared for basic training or what you guys call boot camp. And instead, our mission and objective was really to try to keep them within the program and motivated by some other means until the point they get to basic training and then, you know, send them through there. I think it changed, too, with the Army later on. I'm not familiar with it as close, you know, as close as I was. But I think their objective now is to keep them through basic training. I believe that's what the Marine Corps all along was, right? It was the mission was to get them through basic training or through boot camp, and then you wouldn't get the credit until they completed it. I'm not sure exactly, but when when, when you say, like, if that, if that was the the goal along I think so at least at least in all the in all the doctrine and and all the policies and things like that I think if you look at the statistics maybe that wasn't so true back in the day <laughs> didn't it, it looked like there was a quite a bit of attrition right um, but those numbers have like continually improved and they've shown that the quality of recruits like but based on their physical fitness and their and their test scores has, has also improved I think it is in, in the long run but I couldn't tell you for sure yeah, I just drove by, as a matter of fact, uh, this past weekend and seen a whole bunch of recruits. It must have been one of those weekends where they, you know, get them all together and they were out there doing sit-ups on the side of the highway and, you know, <laughs> cars are driving by and the whole bed. And my wife said, oh, look over there and told her automatically, yeah, th- those are Marines. And not to mention, I could see the guys were had their back to, you know, the, the recruiters. And then, of course, when they turned around, they had the T-shirt that said Marines. But it was very obvious just because that's what they do. They, they end up working <laughs> them out all the time, you know. they're Right, right. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder. So, for uh, the recruits that were going into the army, were they were they at least tested or screened beforehand? The only uh, thing that we were allowed to do from a, no physical other than the actual you know physical exam at the MEPS, we could do the you know the ASVAB and the MEPS and that's it. And then on our DEP weekends, what we ended up doing, or when we got them together on a Saturday or something, we ended up doing maybe some drill, marching, teach them some basic stuff that might help them within basic training. You know, talk with mm-hmm. them, and it was more about motivation. You know, keeping okay, them okay. in the delayed entry program because that was a, a big piece of it. Whereas I believe the Marine Corps was getting them ready for boot camp physically. I'm sure mental was a part of it as well, but getting them prepared to actually, you know, make it through it. No, definitely. I mean, I I think you're right when they're saying that the the recruiters didn't get credit until anybody they recruited made it all the way through. And I I can't remember exactly, but I want to say they. So the, the in the Marine Corps, as soon as the recruits get in, I think day two or three. I can't remember now. We run them through a uh, physical fitness test, and they have to make a minimum minimum. So, sure, uh, if they're and if they're not close, uh, as a commander, I have the option of of sending them back, and and that's something I would discuss with the drill instructors to see, hey, do you think this is somebody you can train over the next uh, thirteen weeks um, to that yeah. point? But yeah, if it, if they couldn't even hit the minimum minimums, it, it looked pretty bad on the recruiter. Yeah, you would think that they wouldn't give them a contract until they 
kind of put them through the ringer first to see how right, they right, they right. would do because, like you said, it's a huge investment when you're you just have someone sign on the dotted line. I had, I had a question for you um, with the Marine Corps because I know with the Army we have a co-ed, but with the Marine Corps it's just strictly male and then there's female boot camp now. Are they, with the times changing and everything, are they going to be changing that to where it's co-ed or are they going to strictly keep it separated? <laughs> I uh, can't speak for the Marine Corps, but I, I, I'm pretty sure they're not going to mix those for for a while, until probably until their hand is forced. Um, that's, not that's that, I mean, not hear. that they really need to at this point. The, the Marine Corps is small enough that uh, I don't think that that really is an issue. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure if the, if the, the order was given, they'd, they'd make it happen. I just think it's interesting how... You know, where with the Marines, it's like that's, or with any service, like that is the basic start of your military career. And everybody nowadays, I mean, not to go on a political tangent, is, you know, equal rights for women and we get to do everything and, you know, without having to think about the, the repercussions. But it's funny how they open up our basic combat forces, well, in the Army now, special forces too, but they haven't even thought about, like, seeing the dynamic of men and women together at their like the very initial training, you know, especially with the Marines. So it's just interesting to how politically people dive in with their feet rather than thinking about it. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm glad that they're keeping it separated. Go Marines. One of the things that when we talked about, gosh, eight months ago or so, was that you were in the middle of writing a book at that time frame about salary negotiation. I think you've now published it. It's called Barracks to Boardrooms, Negotiating Your Salary After Serving in the Military. Yes. And you did a lot of research going into this book. You're right, Robert. I, I did go into a lot of research. And it's an interesting topic because it's one of those things where people are really interested because it involves you know money and career. So anytime there's a topic about uh, something like that, maybe whether it's investing or personal finance, I think people people's ears perk up. And the other reason that people find it really interesting is that nobody really talks about it, or most people you know don't learn about it. And you know, there's no class in high school about salary negotiation. There's no class in the military, whether you're going through uh, your training or when you're transitioning out, about salary negotiation. And it was one of those things where I realized that really quickly, if it's not something that you are aware of, you know, not one of the, if it's a skill that you don't practice or, or, or even know about, then you could be left way behind with what you earn over your career. Because most employers, and I'm not saying that the employers are, are bad, but most employers are, are trying to make business decisions. And sure. part of the business decision is trying to figure out what to pay their employees. And at the end of the day, of course, they'd much rather pay just a little bit less for a really good employee because over time, you know, they could always pay that employee more, but it makes more business sense in the long run for them to keep saving money. So it's one of those things that as a as a individual, if you realize that and you negotiate your salary, you know, if you're a talented employee that I would say most companies will pay you, you just have to do it the right way. Well, we did a whole podcast on compensation, and you know, when you start talking about compensation, it goes into not just the salary, but you may get stock options or grants if it's a publicly traded company, or you may get, uh, you know, like the restricted stock bonuses, all kinds of different things that you take into the whole compensation package. But when you're talking about salary, I, I think too there are a lot of people that may not realize at a certain level negotiation is part of it. They typically do come in at a percentage that may not be 15% the median 
but it could be somewhere halfway in there to see if they could get you at that mark and much lower. Now, being in the 50th percentile or below the median in amount for that particular skill is not necessarily a bad thing. Like you said, it gives you the opportunity to move up within that position for some period of time before you move to the next level. But I think a lot of people don't know that there's still some gap there that you could negotiate. Right, right. And and I like to say it's not about just salary negotiation. It's about learning salary negotiation skills. So a big part of that, Robert, is is evaluating salary, understanding what goes into compensation. Uh, one of the crazy stats that I found while I was doing the research is, you know, 26% of people when they go uh, when they get their job offer don't even know what the normal salary is for that job. So hmm. they're just yeah accepting in the dark it's to me it's like if you went to a car dealership and the guy just said hey this is this is what the car is worth so right uh, especially a used it. car dealership yeah you don't want to do <laughs> who, that who trusts the car salesman these days Not, right. no offense if you're a car salesman right, right. I, I just think uh, you know most people will do their homework for for something like purchasing a car or buying a home but surprising amount of people won't do the research when it comes to their own job yeah, that's so true. But that's also true that we find, and I think you've also done the same thing with the program that you have at Success Vets. You run a podcast where you share information, but I think you've also run the same thing. When, when people are getting off of the military, they don't do their homework and doing the planning and preparation that they would for any other thing, vacations or even a military mission or objective. They seem to, to have like this blackout that happens when it comes to transition and doing the research that, to your point, might better their own career. Yeah, and, and I the reason I wrote the book, or, or one of the big reasons, is I made all those same mistakes. Uh, the, the, the first job after I left the military, I didn't ask anybody whether or not the salary was was fair. I pretty much uh, talked to the recruiter, and the recruiter said, you should accept, and I said, okay, <laughs> uh, and went along. It wasn't until months later when I was talking to other veterans and colleagues at the company and realized that there were people making double for the same job. Ouch. So, yeah. yeah, and that's that's <laughs> that's when I realized it, it wasn't. Uh, it's not about whether or not uh, I don't. I don't think the company took advantage of me. I mean, I just never asked, so it was really on me. I never had that conversation. Well, I think too, coming from the military, especially if you have like young officers or even enlisted, they get their degree, they commission, they go into the military, and you uh, there's such a plethora of information on what a second lieutenant, lieutenant captain is going to make, and with time and service. I, I just speaking on the army side, I'm not completely sure with the Marines, but it's it's kind of like ingrained in your head when you're there, like, hey, you're a private, you're going to make this amount of money. If you get married, <laughs> right, you're going to yeah. make this this amount of money, you know? So when you go to the civilian side, I think, I think vets, they're kind of doing themselves a disservice because there are so many similarities where you can go out and look for, look for the information and talk to people about, you know, what you need to do to see how much you're going to make or how, what the time off is or, you know, whatever the case is. Whereas in the military... It's like, it's just, it's right there. And people yep. talk about it all the time. So, and I think, you know, like you said, it's not so much, you know, CEOs are, are running a business. So it's, that's like hindsight. You know, if you, if you want to take the initiative, go out and do it. But I think that's where vets, like you said, are doing the disservice to themselves is that it's not handed to them like it is in the military. So, yeah. And I, there, there, so Kat, there, I think there's a lot of like mental hurdles as well. Like for me, I was thinking I was I was this rank for so long. You know, this is the kind of job or the type of work that I'm looking for. When in reality, that kind of stuff might not make me happy. Like now, I have all this choice, but I chose to do very similar things to what I did in the military, even if it doesn't make sense to me, uh, to my personality. And so I think, 
you know, figuring out uh, what you really want to do and, and figuring out how your, your military background can translate into what you want to do in the civilian world is something that's, that's very crucial, but it's not something that's talked about, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a, that, to me, it's like almost a whole lifetime of stuff where I was told, this is what I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden, I have to decide, you know, what am I good at? What can I provide a company? And how do I, how do I actually say this is what I'm capable of, capable of doing without describing it as, oh, hey, I was an officer in the Marine Corps? Because you know, when you're that, when you're going to the civilian side, you're, it's you're really having you really have to like describe the skills that you're you're able to bring to a to an employer. Well, that's so true because especially you know, say like for me, when I first joined the military, I was an 88 Mike, which is transportation. And you asked me today if I want to be a truck driver, I would probably shoot you in the face. Right, right. right. You know? I was military police. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't done law enforcement since. And you think about it, it's like you, you feel like that you're in this enclosure where I have to, the only thing that's going to translate to the civilian side is that title, you know, like military police. Okay, so I have to go be a police officer. But then you don't think about, and I see a lot of this with vets, including myself, you don't think about everything that you did as an as a an officer about all of the the skills that translate that will make you effective to go work in you know corporate America and I think that's where I know Robert and Mike and all of us Rudy we always say like look at everything you did not so much on the job aspect because you know those guys are SF guys they can't go out and like target people in America <laughs> you know like that's not you can't that's not going to translate over but look at like the different skills about that you did to the rank that you were and how that will translate and that you aren't just, you know, centered on being an MP or a truck driver. Yeah, I think it really is, as you probably mentioned within your book, Byron, you know, the value that you're going to bring to the organization. And so if you don't know your self-worth, if you don't know your value coming in to the negotiation, then you don't understand already that key aspect of the negotiation process is going to be. I mean, it's, it's going to be about you and what you can bring to the organization. With the position that you're in now and how much you've learned, do you feel that people or NCOs, officers that are in the service now, should take the time to actually teach the lower enlisted or lower um, ranking officers on, you know, that they're not, that they don't just have to settle for? Ooh. Yeah. That's a, that's I, a tough question. It is really a tough, tough one. Yeah. Uh, and mostly because I, mean, I know it goes I, with like counseling and I know that's part of the NCO's job, but I just think that, you know, even they don't know. So right, right, right. I, I even think part it's, of the transition part. No, I, I think I prefer the methodology where one, not, at the end of the day, I, I know even with, even with me writing the book, not everybody's going to negotiate just like not everybody's going to go for the best school that they can get into or the other hardest job they can get. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of a, people will just self-select it. Some people will just accept that you know, this, the salary is what they're going to get. And they don't believe that it's something that they can negotiate. And, you know, this was a problem I was having when I was leaving the military is I was talking to all my former mentors. So all the senior leaders in the military, but they couldn't really give me great advice about transitioning because none of them had transitioned. So it was important for me to, to seek out mentorship outside of the military. And, for me, that's that's really uh, how I learned a good chunk of of salary negotiation as well. It was reaching out to uh, mentors and and others who had had careers after the military and had done it for a while and were able to, you know, teach me uh, a lot of the things that that I needed to know. So I I don't know if the the best source of information would be from somebody still in the military, but I think uh, it could be part of transition training just to talk about compensation in general and also what are some things 
that uh, employers will do that could prevent you from earning the, the most that you could. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, getting a loan or, or buying a car. Yeah, it, there are some things that you, as a consumer or an individual, you just need to be in the know. That's, that's where I think the challenge is going to be is the transition assistance program, though. I, and, you know, Byron, you and I have talked about this in other conversations. But, you know, the transition assistance program tries to be very cookie cutter across, you know, wherever they're teaching it, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, or whether it's different installations. And typically the individuals that might be leading that are not as skilled to not only the corporate America and how they do things within the human resources side and compensation especially, but also maybe not even have ever been a hiring manager in the first place to even understand that aspect of it. So when you throw those challenges in, I don't know that you might even find that the transition assistance program is the best place unless there was a model that you could create that could be kind of cookie cuttered across very basic understanding and what it might mean to you. But I think, too, the challenge might be is that there's a certain level that you probably won't be able to actually negotiate. It might be more manager and above that you get a chance to negotiate salary and anything below that you might not. Right. There's definitely a uh, like kind of a cost-benefit analysis. I address it like really shortly in my book where I'm saying that, you know, if you're, if you're in the t- line of work where it's not really hard to replace you, you really can't. You don't have too much room to negotiate. Uh, you can try, just just don't put too much effort into it because it might be one of those conversations where you you say, "Hey, can I can I get uh, fifty cents extra per hour, or can I get an extra day off, or something like that?" Right. I, I, I said, if you're interested and you think uh, you can get it, it's still worth trying because sure. most of the time, employers just say no uh, if they can't, uh, or if they if they uh, are, are unable to pay you more or, or provide you other benefits. You rarely lose the job offer unless you do it very, very wrong. But if you're professional, you're courteous, you're polite, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, good point. I I think there was a model that you could actually lay out for the transition assistant program that it might be very helpful. But I I still wonder if the information is going to be current up to date. Is it going to be beneficial? Well, if if we're talking about transition assistance programs, I I always thought this would be an interesting idea. Because so at the Naval Academy, we would have lectures throughout the year and it was it definitely wasn't voluntary, but it was sort of like an extracurricular. It was provided by the Alumni Association, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the school itself. And you have all these speakers from Thomas Friedman to Condoleezza Rice to uh, Roger Staubach uh, to David Robinson. So really, these these figures who could come back and tell you about leadership and character and morals, not necessarily, you know, anything that we would take away and use the very next day, not like a, a math algorithm or something like that, but a lifelong skill and, and stories to give us inspiration and to teach us, uh, you know, what the bigger picture was. And I think in the Marine Corps, I'm sure very much like the Army, we're, we're pressed for time. There's no way we could fit everybody into a week or three weeks or a month-long course to get them prepared for separation. But I think if we're truly trying to prepare everybody for like to be good citizens after they leave the military, then that's something we should be doing throughout their time. Yeah, and that could be something that every command just has the option to do. So they come back from pre-deployment training. Maybe there's a an inspirational speaker that can talk about a certain subject. And I, I'm willing to bet one of the subjects that people would be really interested about would be around uh, anything to do with money. So I, I know they sure. have some like personal finance 
classes and things like that. But if you talked about this, even for people that weren't going to get out, I think what I've found is a lot of folks in the military, you know, after a while start to realize that, hey, this is not going to be my last job. So yep. I'm going to have to learn and prepare. And that's why they go to school and things like that. I think they would attend lectures like that for their own benefit. Absolutely. I think prior to 9-11, there was uh, what we used to have called non-commissioned officer professional development. And in that, we would get all the NCOs together. And typically, it was just like you mentioned. There was a guest speaker that the sergeant major would bring in. And sometimes it was something like, you know, Army Emergency Relief Fund type of things or that type of stuff. But on occasion, it would be around understanding, you know, your insurance or taxes, or this would be one of those types of topics. I don't know that those types of things exist that much today. Talking to a lot of the NCOs that are currently serving, I tend to hear that a lot of the professional development stuff or what they now call, I think, sergeant's time or those types of things are not dedicated to post-military life. No, no. (laughs) And I, I didn't see it very much. I think, too, you know, with a lot of the podcasts that we, just the feedback that we've gotten uh, just from guests is that vets are more receptive to to vets. So I think, you know, what you're doing is incredible because, like you said, just having a motivational speaker come in to talk with soldiers about transition or, like like with your book, with salary negotiation, they would be way more receptive. And I think they would take you more seriously because... You, you did serve and you went through this process and now you, you have all this knowledge that you want to dispense to everybody. So there, they, it would be more beneficial to have vets come in instead of just, you know, hiring some company that is specializes in loans or um, I think they would be more <laughs> yeah. productive. You know what I'm saying? Right, so, right, right. I, like with your book and uh, your, your service and your history with the Marines, I think like just what you're doing is extremely beneficial and and vets need to jump on board to this. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Kat. I, yeah, I, I definitely think that's true, that, that veterans will listen to other veterans. And that was sort of the reason I started the podcast, because that's where I was getting a lot of my advice when I was transitioning. And for, for certain points or, or for th- certain things that you're trying to figure out, you have to talk to other people that have been through it. And those veterans told me about the struggles they had when they transitioned. And that really helped me realize, you know, I'm not I'm not alone and and I can figure it out. And it's weird because when you first get out, I think you feel very alone. Why do you think so many have the difficulty of negotiating, though? I I mean, there is that dance that has to occur as part of the process. Is it a, a fear of just not wanting to have that difficult conversation? And at what point do you actually have it? Yeah, I think there are two layers to that, Robert. So the, the first layer is just what the what the research tells us. And, and for the most part, people are uncomfortable. Money is not a, a subject that, that's, I mean, it's sort of taboo in some strange way uh, here. So people don't like to bring up that subject. They're not sure when they're supposed to do it with the employer. And they're they're really worried. I think this is a big one. They're really worried about annoying the other person for whatever reason, right? They, they think that, hey, if I negotiate, they're going to uh, resent me, uh, which is a, a pretty common uh, emotion that comes up when people want to disagree with somebody else and say, no, this is actually what I believe I deserve to be paid. So uh, all those things uh, combined. But I think that the next layer of, of reasons for why people don't negotiate is just that it's complex. I mean, you have to be able to bring up the subject very professionally. You have to go out and do your homework and, and research the industry, can, which can be really confusing because nobody says, 
a project management job in this industry is equivalent to a program manager job at this company in this city, right? Like, even though they might be the sure. same, uh, you have to go out and do that research to do the math. And then you have to have confidence in all that research that you did to be able to come back and say, hey, this is what I found. This is what I think is fair. And this is what I'm sticking to, right? Like, th- that's a lot of conviction that you then have to come up with to tell somebody who just said, hey, we want to hire you and we're going to give you this much money. And I remember when I first left the, the Marine Corps, I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. That seems like a good deal until I realized it wasn't a good deal. You know? You've got something that's out there on your website right now that says not negotiating can be more costly than you think. And according to the researchers, assuming a 5% average annual pay increase over a 40-year career, a 25-year-old who negotiated a starting salary of 55000 will earn 634000 more than a non-negotiator. That's, that's pretty significant. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. And the the number they use there is, I think, if you're, what was it, 25? It's a $5,000 difference in salary that you negotiate at that time. And then they're they're assuming a 5% increase. Now, I think that, you know, 5% could be generous. Yeah, uh, that is from, generous. Especially around, yeah, now, nowadays, what I see right. is closer to like 2 or 2%, 3%. Right. And even that's high. But that's still about two hundred to $300,000 over your career. And... I just think it's funny that, you know, people will barter <laughs> for the best deal on, on a car, which makes total sense because that's a good chunk of change. This is really a, even bigger, as I mean, and it has a much larger effect on what you're going to do your whole life. You know, that's a good point because when you think about the salary aspect of it, every time you go to another job, usually the recruiter or somewhere along the line, they may request or ask of you, what was it that you were making in your previous position or in your current position if they're contacting you while you're currently employed? And so that number is going to kind of live with you. Typically, I would not bring somebody in as a hiring manager too far above that amount. It might be 10%. It wouldn't be usually much more beyond that unless it was an exceptional person that would add a lot of value to my team and to the organization. Then I might consider going above that to 15% or maybe even something a little bit higher, but typically whatever you've started off might be that progression of whether it's the annual average increase in adjustment of income that's 2% or whatever that the company's offering you outside of that. It's just moving from position to position. I found that by the time I inherited somebody as an employee, I might actually look at their compensation and they're telling me they feel like they're undercompensated and I look and they are. It's because someone brought them in extremely low in their career or they switch positions and it was you couldn't just make that adjustment quickly so what you end up having to do then is adjust it over a longer period of time and you know you work with HR to do that but this this just goes to show Byron how important it is to actually negotiate and understand what your value is and what that income should be because it really will follow you throughout your career yeah and I, I think it's interesting that you talk about how that uh that the salary conversation is is happening even before you bring some a candidate in to be interviewed. Yes. Right? Like salary negotiation doesn't happen at the very end of the process. Uh, it's there's really that that sort of dance is happening from the very beginning, even while you're getting screened. And so if you're not aware of that, you know, it, you could be hurting yourself if somebody doesn't realize that they're being they're overpaid and they apply for other jobs. They're not going to get them just because 
it, it seems like they're, you know, these other companies would never be able to afford them. So it's something that they, they should be aware of if they're thinking about uh, transitioning even within their own uh, career field. It makes it so important that you do the actual research behind it because, as well, you may be evaluating a position with, say, I don't know, West Coast, and then you're looking at a position on the East Coast where you live, and you can't compare the two. And I talked about that in the compensation podcast that we did. But I think, too, you kind of need to understand that you may price yourself right out of the market or you may be undervaluing yourself. And, you know, again, that homework and that research is so important in the process. Yeah, it's huge. And it's not always just about the, the value uh, that uh, for yourself. I, th- I think it's what you think is important. So there are a lot of things that, that won't cost the company very much money at all. Some things like how you schedule your work time, whether or not you can work from home, uh, how you take uh, certain benefits, and those things might hold a whole lot of value for for you, but it might not make a difference to the company. So it's one of those things like that you want to make sure you work out before you sign the contract, if you can, because you know that just makes sure that you, you get what you want and it's fair, and and both sides are happy because the company might not have to pay anything extra, but they but they get the uh, employee that they want, and, and you're making the same amount, but you're getting the the benefits and perks that really matter to you. And I, I think that's the other aspect of it, making sure that you're happy overall. Like at the end of the day, it's not about making the most money. It's about, you know, what do you think is fair and, and what would be adequate for, for your lifestyle? Did you find within your research that most of the time the subject about compensation or at least salary is usually brought up by the hiring recruiter, usually not even the hiring manager. Usually it's the HR person that gets engaged or did you find it at another period of time or by another individual within the process? Well, for most people going through the process, it didn't come up until the very end when they said, then the company said, hey, here's the We would like to make you an offer. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And and this is working with mostly... uh, veterans uh, and a lot of them were working through recruiters so that so the whole process was was pretty clear cut you know the they had an idea of the salary before they went in just from the the job position and the information given by the recruiters uh, and then the the final salary that were on the contract was pretty close to that when the when they were given an offer at the at the end of the interviews Right. I've had people ask me the same thing, you know, all the time about when is it that I'm supposed to broach the conversation? It's like, no, we'll wait until you've totally proven your value. You've gone through the entire process. And in the end, trust me, they're going to bring that to you if you're the candidate right, that they're looking right, right. for. They're going to come to you and go, OK, yeah. Byron, we, we'd really love to have you. This is our offer. We'd like you to take a look at it. And typically when you get that, you can request this is another negotiation piece. You'd like to have 24, 36, 48 hours in order to review it, talk it over with your significant other or, you know, just have an opportunity to kind of digest it. And then can you get back with them? I, I've never found a situation where I, at least in my own experience, as being both on the side of the person being hired as well as the hiring manager, where I, I turned that away or I was turned away right. from being able to negotiate that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great nuance that you bring up. And for me, that's what makes salary negotiations fun. It's really like there's this whole system that you have to decipher. And so for me, I mean, that's what I've, I feel like in my career, that's what I was always trying to figure out. Like, how do I work within the bureaucracy of the of the military and and, and do well at it? So yeah, that, that probably makes me a little strange. But the, yeah, so that, that conversation that you have with somebody, I, I always tell people that 
look, your focus is to do your best at this interview first. And your, yeah. your, your first priority is be the best employee that you can be like that. Like, don't be good. Don't be a good salary negotiator just to negotiate salary. Right. Like th- that's a skill that you build upon all the other things that are far more important first. But once you, you know, once you realize that you're a, a, a top candidate or you're a very good employee, you need to learn this skill to protect yourself. And it, if you can, always hold off on figuring out what that number is and let the other person bring it up first, right? If you bring it up first, then you're kind of anchored to it. So just those, those two things I want to throw out there. No, that's great. And actually, I was going to ask you, what are some of the other things that you can look at throughout the process of negotiation that you can adapt? Because I think that through the negotiation, a lot of people don't realize that they already have a sales capability within them or the ability to negotiate. I mean, if they ever dated somebody, they had the ability to convince others. I think a lot of people don't give themselves the credit. For me, I think salary negotiation is a life skill. So even if you don't use it for your next job interview, I I still think it's important to to know um, the background. At the very least, you should know that for whatever job you're going for, what's the range of salaries that you should expect to get? and whether or not that's acceptable for you. Because if it's not, there's no reason for you to be going through those job interviews. Uh, but if, if you realize that there's a range that's going to be acceptable for you, then then just be open-minded and, and evaluate it as you get more information. I think that's something that actually grows throughout your whole career because you never know what might happen, and you may be contacted by a recruiter or a headhunter throughout your process so understanding what your value is and that it might carry more within a different organization, and it could be based on the size of the organization as well. Uh, you know, smaller companies may not always be able to compensate at the same amount as a you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 100 type company might. Um, they have different benefits. So when you're doing that background research, you're not only investigating, you know, geographical aspects of it, you're, you're investigating everything including levels or roles and responsibilities based on the size of the organization you're joining. Robert, now that you bring that up, I was just thinking that it's it's also important to start looking ahead about what sort of salary and also just what responsibilities you want to have five years down the line. And whatever you want to do in the future, you have to start planning for in the now. So if you're taking a job that where your roles and responsibilities are going to take you away from where you want to be in the future, you know that's a, that's also another decision you have to make. Very true. And those are actually some of those things you can actually negotiate into the salary. And and that's not something I'm. I guess that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm just trying to say that you know uh, if all this knowledge about you know how you're compensated and the sort of type of job that you do, it's not a short term thing. Uh, it's not something that for you to get what you want right now. It's so that you're considering your whole career that, hey, over the lifetime of your career, you're going to make a certain amount of money. You want to maximize that. Probably have goals and and things that you want to do. So you want to make sure you put yourself in a good position to do that. And yeah, those are those are all things that as a, a negotiation skill, you know, evaluating and, and looking ahead and, and strategizing. And it doesn't always result in a in negotiation. So I, I mean, that's why I think it's so important. When you start looking at roles and responsibilities, you may be taking on more responsibilities that require a certain compensation to go along with it because, again, of the risk factors, whether it's something to deal with 
regulatory, the marketplace, how you may make decisions that adjust that, that impact profit and loss statement? So a good example, I think, is uh, I, I had a friend of mine who I was helping with the, with the salary negotiation, and he was working at a startup. So he, he said, hey, they, they won't give me any more equity. This is kind of the salary I'm stuck at. Uh, this is the title they gave me. And I was like, well, so they gave you a director title. That's interesting. They expect you to grow your department pretty quickly, right? And he's like, yeah. And uh, well, he's like, well, can you get them to change your title from director to vice president? I mean, you're at a startup, so the roles don't, like the titles don't matter to them. Uh, but if you get a VP role at a startup and the company does well, a few years down the line, you could say you're a VP at a startup. And that, and that has a lot of cachet for whatever company you go to, right? At, and if you can't negotiate anything else, and in that's the direction you want to go in your career, why don't you see if they'll consider that? So that's something that he brought back to his uh, his company. That's an excellent point. And then not to mention that as you start moving up within the ranks of you know the private sector, and especially if you start moving into larger organizations, you may roll into a position, and let's say that company goes public, uh, you might roll in a situation where the board decides that they want to retain their executive force. So what they're going to do is offer them an employee contract where you do get a portion of equity. If you have a change yeah, of position yeah. or a role, it automatically executes your contract. If you, you may have a non-compete, which says that you can't work for one year or two years in a competitive market after leaving the organization. So because of that, there's a package that would go with it. So these are all employee or you know executive contracts that are typically not known as well, unless you are close to that, say as a director that would be evaluating it for a vice president position. So the advice was actually very good to give him in that way. But if he understands as well that there could be other nuances that are not normally talked about, such as executive contracts, it might have even taken it another level. You know what I mean? Like right, on, right, right. Yeah. Those are the things that are not always talked about as well. No, it's it's fascinating, like how much can go into it. And I mean, I, I'd say, you know, at, at that level, that's what people talk about. It's something that... Uh, sure. It's not just... Uh, you You can't just find the answers online in a blog, really. I mean, you have to... You have to have... Uh, you be able to reach out to mentors and people that are in the industry to really get all the information... Uh, that you need to make the right decision. What are some of the things that someone can take away from your book that you can give kind of as a nugget right now that the, hey, these are the three or four things that if you do, that'll really benefit you in the negotiation process or understanding that? We talked about doing your homework, which I think is the easiest thing and the most important thing anybody could do because that, that shows that you're a good employee as well. You're going to take the initiative and do your research and that gives you a big leg up because you can quickly evaluate whether something is fair or not. The other thing I think is to not be afraid to ask. I mean, I, I talked about some of the numbers previously, but it, I find that whenever I'm, I'm helping somebody with their negotiation, they're always asking me, hey, is this okay for me to do? Am I going to lose the offer? And and my main job seems to be to reassure them that you're, you're doing fine. Like, I, I know that you're a competent person and you can communicate. You don't have to be afraid of asking. And I relate it back to the military. Hey, if you think something is right, you're going to bring it up if that's the right thing to do. Yeah, it, it might bring bad feelings or something like that, especially if you're doing it to somebody senior, but you should still have the confidence in, in knowing uh, what's right or doing the right thing. So I, I attribute it to that. So do, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, you're growing up, uh, big boys and girls, you know, nobody's going to yell at you. <laughs> 
probably. So, <laughs> and you can, and you've dealt with worse, right? So th- this is, this is something that you, you shouldn't uh, be afraid of. And the, I think the, the other big thing is you have to be in control of your career, right? Like you, you can't say that somebody else is going to pay me fairly just because you, you can't say that people are going to treat me the right way just because that's the right thing to do. Cause at the end of the day, like the, the world isn't made up of, of things like that. You have to, you can't just go through it and be unaware. Uh, that's why you have to do your homework. If you don't feel like somebody's going to pay you fairly based on the research that you've done, then you need to speak up about it. Like there's nobody else in the room. You don't get an agent, right? We're not athletes, uh, professional athletes. You have to work in your own best interests. And, and that's a really weird thing to do when you leave the military because you always lived by uh, the results of your actions, you know, you by by your word and your bond. You have to market yourself a little bit when you when you leave the military and be willing to say, hey, this is I'm awesome and I deserve to be treated awesomely. Right. Sometimes you don't have to yell it all the time. But right. that's the mentality that I try to push people to. I mean, there's definitely the, the other extreme where people are too cocky and things like that. But I find that for most veterans that I work with, I, I'm really pushing them hard to come out of that shell and be confident about uh, themselves as, as, a, as an employee. So where can people find your book? The name, by the way, is Barracks to Boardrooms. Outside of Amazon, are there other locations? Uh, there is. You can find it on CreateSpace, but I think Amazon is uh, the easiest space, <laughs> easiest place to find it. And then there's uh, my website, successfest.com where they can check out more podcasts and articles like that. Thanks so much, Byron, for coming on the show. I think the information that you provided today is really helpful. Not to mention, I encourage everybody to go out and get the book where they can learn a lot more about how to negotiate their salaries and the information that goes within that. You've done a lot of study and research that went into this book that will be really helpful to those that are transitioning as well as veterans that are looking as they're migrating into additional roles in the private sector when it comes to salary negotiation. I think it's a really important factor. And as you said, it's one of those steps that we don't always consider as important as much as we do in buying a house and buying a car. So take care of yourself and definitely go get the book and get ahead. Hey, Robert and Kat, thank you. This was a pleasure. Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app. And if you're on Twitter, Be sure to follow us there at Mentors, the number four, M-I-L.